Hi, I'm Mark Hopkins, and welcome back to another episode of Unsung. I'm not going to do the long intro because we're doing this remotely, and I'm interviewing, uh, I don't want to say local legend, but I just did, uh, <laughs> uh, journalist Bill Baldini, who uh, I think uh, a bunch of people will know. Some people won't know because of age, but the people that know him i talk to a bunch of people i usually talk to friends before i do an interview and say what do you think about this and uh my my, my friends were uh, they they peaked up on this one more than they have on any interview i've done um and i think i think so i just wanted to get something in first i think so because um when i would watch when i would watch you on news i would uh, i would notice that you were always you had a humble confidence, you know. It was, it was. Uh, oh, I like that humble confidence. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Oh, yeah. that sounds terrific. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 really did. You, you had, you, 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 you seem like that. You at times the stories move you to the point where you, where you were holding back emotion because you wanted to be impartial, and then at times you might have wanted to smack the person. But you stay neutral all the time, and I don't see that neutrality anymore in journalism, or not that much. Uh, it's 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 too much. Uh, it's reflecting a lot the interviewers' uh, feelings on the subject. But uh, thank you for coming. We worked out a remote thing, and uh, I'm really glad to um, to speak with you. And I really appreciate your time, Mr. Bill Baldini. Great. The um, uh, how'd you get started? <laughs> you, you you have a great story. Yes, my my story is not uh, the normal story of journalists. Uh, I, I when I was in high school, I thought I knew it all, and I was supposed to go to Cornell because my father was from Ithaca, New York, and I knew that they could not afford that. So I decided to, since I knew it all, I was going to go into the Air Force, let them pay for it, and I you know, and then okay. I go to college. Okay. And at the time, there was a drift. So you you ha either got drafted or you volunteered. So I volunteered. Well, after about two days, I realized I made a gigantic mistake. And I had four years at Air Force to go. <laughs> to make a long story short, I, I made the best of the, of the situation. And I kind of had a good time. And by the time I got out, I was totally convinced that I was a captain of industry. That there were businesses out there that were just waiting for me, and I was, and I went to college as in the Air Force. So when I got out, I I lived uh, in Overbrook, and I drove down Township Line, and the first big building I saw was Channel Six. So I stopped in there, and I filled out all the forms, and I was about to go upstairs, and the guy at the back door says, "By the way." What, what school did you graduate from? What college? I said, well, I, I didn't graduate yet because I was in the Air Force for four years and I, and I have two years of college and I'm, I'm going to LaSalle at the time. And he goes, oh, stop right there. Let me have that application back. Gotta have, we'll come back when you get a degree. I already had a parking space. So I saw Channel 10. So I went across the street. And you didn't want to make that left because that left has always been murder. It was a right. It was a right to go downtown. See, with more big buildings. But since I already had the parking space, I went across the street to Channel 10. Same thing. Guy at back door gave me an application. He says, by the way, uh, did you graduate college? I said, absolutely. <laughs> he says, all right, go upstairs to the second floor. And I'm going upstairs. I sort of got this to the truth. I never saw so many good-looking women in my life. So I was <laughs> amazed. And then they had brand-new Xerox machines for my resumes. My eyes lit up. And I went up to personnel, and the first person I met was my wife, this beautiful girl. I could not believe this place. So I took all these tests and all this, and they, now I'm going to be interviewed. And there was a woman named Zara Bishop was in charge, and she's sitting in a chair, a little woman. She says, Mr. Baldini, I'm reading your resume. What college did you graduate from? I said, Mrs. Bishop, i got to tell you the truth. If I told you the truth, you would never have the opportunity to hire me. I am still going to school, but it would be a gigantic error for you not to hire me. And she looks at me. She says, are you kidding me? I said, no, I'm not. I'm really a good deal. She said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be you when you leave this job. She says, you're kidding. What do you want to do after that? I said, then I want to be 
the, the head guy upstairs, the captain of industry. She She's laughing. <laughs> she says, you're really crazy. I said, yes, I am. She said, well, guess what? Every Two of our guys got drafted that work in the newsroom. And uh, we have a position, uh, a management trainee at the newsroom. I've never been in a newsroom in my life. Oh, yeah? I said, great. She said, can you start Monday? I said, I'll be there. She said, be there at 5 o'clock. 5 a.m., I show up, my best suit. Nobody talks to me for four hours. <laughs> Nobody. Then this big, goofy guy comes in. He's got his fingers like a pyramid, shaped like a pyramid. And he's whistling. He's going, and I'm thinking, look at this big doofus. Who the hell is he? And he walks over to me. And he says, uh, are you the new copy boy? I said, no, I'm not. He says, you sure? I said, yeah. What's your name? I said, Baldini. He says, you're a new, new copy boy. I said, no, no, no. I'm the management trainee. He said, you better come into my office. So you got to imagine this. For four years, people are telling me I'm no longer a boy. The first thing I hear in civilian life is boy. Yeah. I don't want to hear boy. So I go into his office and he says, uh, management trainee. He says, this is a job for this is a copy boy. And he says, the bottom line is uh, we pay $65 a week. <laughs> and he said, uh, there, there are three of you. One works midnight to eight. The other one works eight to four. And the other third guy works four to midnight. Now, if one of these guys doesn't show up, you got to stay for 16 hours. I said, what if two guys don't show up? He says, you work 24 hours. I said, well, what's the payoff here? He said, after a year, one of you guys is going to be a writer trainee. I said, yeah, not really. He says, yeah. I said, and I got I to gotta warn you, one guy is graduating Harvard. The other guy's got a master's from Yale. And, and you, what do you think? I said, I think I'm going to win. And he says, why do you think you're going to win? And I said, because I'm a man and they're boys. This guy gets hysterical. He said, Baldini, be here be here at 9 o'clock. Or no, at, at 12 o'clock, midnight, the next day. And that's how I got started. What happened I, to the other two guys? Uh, they didn't make it. Uh, uh, both of them both of them, evident, went, went into civilian life, as we called it. And uh, I, I won, and I became the writer. The uh, and that was uh, that's the that's the title of your autobiography. You know, I already had a parking spot. No, that's a great idea. I never thought about it. <laughs> you know, <'cause> it's a, <laughs> and that's the truth. It's a great that's story. The absolute truth. The who mentored you when you got started? Uh, no one really. Uh, there was a guy <laughs> named Bob Williams who was a writer who was really brilliant, and uh, he used to pick on me a lot. And to annoy me, he used to call me boy, and I really get annoyed. But he was very smart. He was very hard on me, but he was very smart, and I, I really appreciate it. And uh, Gene Crane also helped me a lot. Oh, I remember. Gene Crane, I used to, he was the first guy I wrote for, fortunately, because he was, he was not only a bright guy, he was extremely talented, and he really knew news, and he used to – he used to tell me what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong. And uh, that helped. And then uh, John Fassender kind of helped, too. He was later later in, in, on, my, in, my, on my career, in my career. He, uh, he did help me. And, uh, yeah, there's so many people that don't know who John Fassender is. And yeah. it's, when I was growing up, it's like, you know, the voice of God and all that. Correct. And uh, I had Larry Mende on the show, and he – Talk, it was at the end of John Facenda, but I, I, I always, I always wondered why. And I asked him, and I asked somebody else who came on who was there. Did they name a building or anything after John Facenda? They named the street where Channel Ten is. That street, is John Facenda Boulevard. John Facenda Boulevard. But I think they, I think they changed. They it changed it exactly. Yeah, that yeah. was like for twenty years. And yeah. Then they, then they okay. Okay, I thought I was losing my mind because no, they changed not, something to no, change it back. No, because you're absolutely right. I remembered it, but the new guy there said, "No, I don't remember it," and I think they changed it in between. You just solved that mystery, yeah. but um, that's uh, the, when you. What's the first lesson you remember learning when you got started in journalism? The first thing I learned. Yeah, after the first thing I learned is how much I didn't know. Okay, <laughs> that was that was a great learning experience, and I think that's a major problem today because I think a lot of people never learn that lesson. Yeah, well, I learned I, it. I learned. I learned it when I joined the Air Force. I learned. Uh, I, you know, I wasn't nearly as smart as I thought I was. 
I knew nothing. And the second thing was when I became a, a journalist, I I realized, geez, I really don't know anything about this. So it was, it was you know, it was a tough learning curve. What was good about the job? It was fun. Uh, it, to me, it was a challenge. I, I always could write. And uh, that's how I started as a writer. Back in those days, see, you had to, you had to work on the assignment desk. You had to be a writer. You had to become a producer. And only then did you become a reporter. Now they christen you like a knight. <laughs> you know, you, you know, I christen you a reporter, and it's all of a sudden you're a reporter. Not back in those days. That didn't happen at all, ever. What would you do if you didn't do that? In an alternate world, what is Bill Baldini doing? Uh, yeah, I always wanted to be a fighter pilot. Uh, the strange thing is I was in the Air, Air Force for four years. They never let me touch an airplane. And the civilian bad? life, I flew with the Blue Angels. I flew with the Canadian Snowbirds, and I flew with the Thunderbirds. I even had my name on the side of one of the jets. Oh. It was a blast. I loved it. So uh, you did more flying I, as a journalist oh, way more. than you did in, way more. in I used the to fly every day in the helicopter. We used to fly. We had our own helicopter and fly almost every day. It got to a point where I used to tell that pilot to put the other stick in the training stick. I would not go in there without it. And he would fly and then I'd fly. Oh, okay. My idea was if that guy goes. Something happens to him. I'm not dying. Yeah. And that's yeah. what I used to tell the crews who panic when they realize the, the pilot's sleeping and I'm flying to Harrisburg. And I used to tell them, let me tell you, with anybody else, you're a dead man. I'm the only one you have a chance with. Yeah. Then they shut up, go back. Yeah, because you didn't just want to be a passenger. No. No, I, no. I get that, uh, especially in a helicopter. Helicopter, you feel the laws of uh, physics all around you. You're not going to glide in. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing soft about it if it goes wrong. That's correct. The um, – who – you did it for 43 years? 43? Yep. And then you – 44. Yeah. 44. And then you, then you retired and you we, – we talked a little beforehand and you, you – I asked, would you go back? And you emphatically said, no, no you're happy. You're enjoying retirement. Yeah. You're, you're I, I enjoyed my time as a journalist. I really did. Uh, but you know what? It, 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 sooner or later, you just have you had enough. And I, I knew there was more to this life. And there is. I wanted to travel, and I have. And I wanted to spend a lot of time with my, my family, my grandchildren. I wanted them to know exactly who I am. And that's what I've been doing. And it's great. Playing golf, you know. A lot of people leave the party too late. Correct. You know. That's absolutely true. I'll tell you something else. It's an inside story. Too many people decide who they are by what they do. And that's stupid and wrong. Okay. My thing was, I'm me. And being a journalist is what I do. But that's not me. Right. I saw too many people who lost their job and decided they lost their life. They just fell apart. They they decided that's who I am. If I'm not on Channel Ten, I'm no longer useful. And I never I never took that s situation it's, ever. It's a tough industry for that because it's a very lot tough. Of, a lot of um, I don't want to say popularity and vanity but yeah it's a lot of it that's a driving factor correct it? and it's it's far worse now uh it's nothing like it was it's changed dramatically enough for the better yeah it's 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 because i've talked to people that they have to go through these meetings and they're competing against uh they're competing against people who are doing blogging and stuff that don't have any culpability for what they say or what they do correct you know the uh what was the hardest part of the job? For me? Yeah. Getting up in the morning. <laughs> what time did you have to get up? I used to get up at uh, 6.30, 7 o'clock. So you're not a morning person? No, I'm not. I never was. And uh, that was the toughest. Once I was at work, I was just fine. Just getting there. It was probably Yeah, I'm the same way. Are you the type of person that 6.30 is more likely the time you're going to bed? Correct. Getting Okay. I go to bed around between 1 and 2. Right. And I get up at 10, and I really don't care. That's what I like about retirement. No, that... that I love that. that there, There's a... I, I don't know. I, it differs by area, but I that there's a magic sleeping time <laughs> for people that are night owls that's between like 9.30 and 11. 
right in there's that sweet spot where you feel like you get four hours of sleep in an hour in there it's a really nice spot the uh what do you think made you excel at the job i think during i i can actually remember when i i was still writing for gene crane in the morning and and i think i was doing the 7 a.m news or something like that and you, you always try to emulate the people that you respected in the business. And one day, I, I, it was near Thanksgiving, and there was very little going on in the wire services, and I still had to write a half hour. And I decided that there just wasn't anything going on, so I just decided to be me. And on Thanksgiving Day, I was thinking about all those people who weren't home for all the various reasons you wouldn't be able, you had to work like the f cops and the firemen and all those people who were overseas in the military. And I wrote this dissertation about how lucky we were to be home and enjoying our families on Thanksgiving when all these other people weren't around. And I remember Gene Cray, that's the script, and he's reading it and he says, who the hell wrote this? I says, me. He says, well, do you really write this? Not on the wire, sir. I says, yeah, that was me. And he goes, you're getting it. This, and he said, you really, this is really good. And I remember right there I decided, I'm not going to try to emulate you or anybody else. I'm just going to be me. And even when I started on the air, everybody wanted to be Walter Cronkite. Right. Guess what? I can't be Walter Cronkite. I'm not. He's Walter Crocker. Yeah, and he's he's a different guy. He's way, way, way over my head. And after a while, I just decided, hey, look, I'm just going to, when I go out there, I'm just going to be me. And, and you know, if you don't like it, that's fine. If you like it, that's great. But I, I can't be anybody else. And once I decided, I made that mindset choice, I, I enjoyed it. It was easy. What year did you retire? Nine, uh, no, 2000, the last day of 2006. Yeah. In the time you were there, how did you see, and it's done a quantum leap even since, how did you see technology change? Oh, man, it's night and day. When I first started, none of us knew what we were doing. Well, you talked about having to pr produce the story, write the story, report the story, edit the story. Correct. Uh, you had to be all those things before you became a reporter. Like, you were a full-time writer. For at least a year, you, you you had to be copy boy for at least a year. You had to be a full time writer for at least a year. You had to be a producer of the news for at least a year. You had to be on the assignment desk for at least a year. So you had to get your ten thousand hours. Oh man, you, you had to produce a show, and and after that, they said, okay, now you can become a reporter. Well, that's how it was. Right. I mean, you really, you really went through everybody's job. So when you asked, when you were on the street, you knew everybody's job inside. Well, the um, do you have any favorite interviews that you did? Oh man, I did so many. I did so many crazy people. I I I, I loved people like Willie Sutton. You know, <laughs> I asked him, "Did you really say uh, you robbed banks because that's where the money was?" He said, yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah. I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, how come he's, he's, you were brilliant? He was, the guy was brilliant. I mean, the way he broke out of jail and ne never hurt anybody, yeah. ever. I said, do you ever think, you spent most of your life in jail, do you ever think if I ever used my brains for something good, I could have been a rich guy? He goes, yeah, but it wasn't nearly as exciting. <laughs> I'm sitting there thinking, this guy is crazy. But I did enjoy him. I, I, there were just a lot of people. Frank Rizzo? Frank Rizzo was the best interview around. He was incredible. You never had any idea what this guy was going to say. You can ask him about the weather, and he'd come off about invading Cuba and winning. <laughs> yeah, but the build-up. Uh, he, was, he, he was just – he was not – he was the best interview in the industry. But United he seemed States. to respect you. He seemed to like you. I Frank mean Rizzo and I had a, a very strange relationship because in the beginning, he didn't like me at all. 
because Rizzo looked at life and people one way, black and white. Right. He, he, you, if he liked you, he loved you. If he didn't like you, he hated you. If he and it didn't change that often. Yeah, if he, you were either on his side or you weren't, and he could not understand. One day I could say the mayor did this and it was good, and the next day say he did that this and it was really stupid, and. He used to ask the crews. He thought the crews were his people. The reporters were elitists in his mind. And uh, he could not understand that concept that I was just doing my job and calling it like I saw it. And the crews used to tell him, I'm telling you, this is the way this guy is. He's like this every day, that he's just going to say what he thinks is true, but he won't take a cheap shot. And it took about a year. Because he didn't like me for at least a year. And after a while, he started figuring it out that Baldini is just going to, he won't, he won't screw me, but he's not going to pat me on the back every day. Either. Right. So he kind of accepted this relationship. There was a lot of people that he never seemed to warm up to at all no. in the media. And at, at, at least, at least he, he, I remember seeing interviews and I remember watching my father watch interviews and it was always, it was, even then, it was reporters you trusted and reporters you didn't trust as much or thought were confident, informative, and and um, and I remember that uh, he always leaned into your interviews. You know, when you were talking about something, um, so you went from film to videotape, correct? Yeah. Which which had to be huge. Well, yeah, with film, the the difference was in film, the cameras were enormous. And you shot all day, and then you had to bring the film back, and then you had to process the film. Right. That took maybe an hour, two hours, depending on how much film you had. I mean, you, you didn't know the quality of what you got. Exactly. Every day was different. You, you just never knew. And videotape was instantaneous. You know, that's a, that was a big change. And, it, you know, we had to make the transition. It was a good transition. And... But, the, you know, the technology changed enormously. I mean, went from this idea of film to, you know, being live instantaneous every day, all day. Do, do you feel that in that change in technology in any way that the quality got watered down? By Absolutely. Making, by no making, doubt about it. <laughs> okay. I, no but, doubt. <laughs> See, the film, you shot, you shot all day. You came back when they were processing the film. You had time to think. What am I right. going to do? I don't know how to put this together. And then when you got it, you looked at it, and then you wrote it. Today, you go to a story, and you're there 15 minutes, and they want you live. Whether you know anything about it or not, you're going to be live. There's no time to think about anything or prepare anything. It isn't the package. They don't care about the story itself. They want you live, period. Well, and you see that difference. I ha There was something with uh, uh, John Rollins on Channel mm -hmm. 6, and he was doing a story, and he, he pulled me aside, and he said, could you explain to me the side scan sonar? He wanted to know more about it. He didn't just want to say side scan sonar. You know, he wanted to, under, uh, it was ground penetrating radar. He he wanted to know about it. And mm -hmm. none of the other people, kept, they were just writing the words. He's all time. He's all time. I, I know him. Yeah. He's all time reporter. He's good. Who else, who else do you remember? Who are some of the old school guys you remember uh, working with? Uh, well, Channel 10, they're all gone. They're all gone. There's nobody there that uh, I, I grew up with. I still see Terry Ruggles and Steve Levy and Sherry Bank and Vice at Kahama. We eat. We have lunch like every two weeks. Okay. So we we stick together and uh, we just we're all happy we're retired except for Vi. He's the only one working, so he gets to check more than anybody else because he has income. <laughs> you got to keep somebody who's still working. You to pay get for it, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, we all feel the same way that it isn't like it used to be, and that's so that therefore we don't miss it as much. It 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 seems more. I don't want to say dirty, but it seems more soiled in some way or well, less here's pure. The, here's the problem. Let me give you – I'll give you a, an easy example. When I started, the first thing they asked you when you walked in that door after you did a story, the first thing, do you go both sides of that story? And if you said no, 
You better have a damn good reason why you didn't get the other side. For example, the other guy wouldn't talk. You called, you called him at least three times. And he refused because he was guilty of sin. But the point, point was that you tried. You, and you had to say that in the story. You had everything had to be balanced. You left your prejudice, any any prejudice you had, you left it at the door. You left your political feelings at the door. Today, you do a study, nobody asks you anything. They don't ask you to go both sides. They don't really care. The other thing was ethics were a big part of your job. They had meetings, they sent you to school. They had a they had a what they called a blue book, it was very thick, two inches thick. And I'll give you an example of how critical they were. A guy named Bill Stewart, who was really a, an extremely good reporter, went to the network and he got killed on the air in Nigeria. On the air he got killed. Bill Stewart was an extremely good reporter, but when he was at Channel 10, he was doing a story on on firefighters. And as part of the story, he asked them to drive a fire truck down the street with the lights on. Because that wasn't a real action and it was staged, they refused to answer uh, or air the piece and they suspended them for two weeks. That was considered a violation of Correct. integrity? Everything had to be exactly the way it was for real. The, uh, there was no misrepresenting anything at any time. Now it would have gone on there with no problem. Yeah, I mean they'll None. they'll wouldn't even be asked. Well, I've heard I've heard stories of people putting up crime scene tape after it was taken down to make it look <laughs> more get, authentic. You would have gotten fired for that. Well, if you got fired for now, they wouldn't even go ahead. Well, don't worry about it. The uh, what do you think your legacy is? I have no idea. That's not for me to decide what my legacy is. What have people said? Uh, you know, I, I would just hope people would say that you know that I was uh, I was fair and that I I left certain situations better off than I found them. If that's what people said, I'd be a happy guy. Are people happy to see you? Yes, that's most a, most people. Yeah, a lot of reporters can't say that. No, I. I Matter of fact, there's very few that can that can say that people light up and recognize them and have fond memories. I always found that it was a lot easier for me to be nice than not nice. And I could never understand why some people that I worked with weren't nice off the air. Especially especially those egomaniacs who, who went into the business to be recognized, right? And then... After a while, they are recognized in, you know, at, at a restaurant or in a mall. And, and they're, they're upset. Yeah. Well, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with this picture? You know, it would have been a lot easier to be nice to that person than to be rude. And some decided to be rude, which always astounded me. I always thought it was the dumbest thing in the world. I, th I, th I, think, that, um, I think that when you did the story, what came across was that you love the job, you like the story, and you were trying to like the person, you know, or like the person. But it, it just, all the things you described came out, and those things just don't seem to exist anymore uh, in in the background. You don't have the time either, right? But back no. in the day, every station had an investigative unit, and we did a lot of investigative reports. No, nobody does any. Well, it costs money. They're under the 24-hour news cycle, and they're under these constraints, uh, and they're competing with somebody who's blogging out of their basement, you know, effectively. And money is a big part. Yeah. Uh, let me give you another example of the difference. When I was uh, on the assignment desk, you know, right after I was a copy boy and a writer, I was working overnight at 12 to – what was it, 12 to – no, 4 to – no, 12 to, 12 to 8. Midnight day, and the bottom line was there was a, a crazy guy up in Harrisburg, and this is one you only did very locally. Harrisburg was like out there, and this guy was raping young girls. And I remember reading this story and thinking, "This guy is nuts. This is a hell of a story." So I called in two crews overnight and rented an airplane, sent him up there. <laughs> I mean, I, my boss comes in at nine o'clock and says to me, "What what happened overnight?" And I said, are you, are you sitting down, Bob? He said, yeah. And I said, well, first of all, 
I heard the story about this crazy guy raping all these young girls and doing these horrible things to them up in Harrisburg. So I sent two crews in an overtime. And he goes, two? I said, well, that's not the bad news. The bad news is I, I rent an airplane. <laughs> I sent him off on an airplane. This guy was flew out of his chair. And then he thought about it. And he goes, he looks at me and he says, I want you to remember this. Money should never be a reason for missing the story. And I never forgot it. And I, I, I was fine. Now, today, money is the reason you don't do things. If it costs money, you're not going to do them. If an investigator report is not going to happen because it costs money, you are not going to send a crew to someplace other than the local area because it costs money. Money is the motivating factor for not doing things. Okay, well, that's the first half hour and then a little bit of after show. not say the word Penhurst. And yeah. That was my goal. I, and I do want to talk about Penhurst, but I didn't. I wanted to hear a half hour of you without Penhurst. All right. Um, so, um, and I was trying to think of a way because there, I, I tried to think of a way. I told you how I got involved with Penhurst and went up there and, it, and then I backtracked to where you were and I got the... Um, and I and I watch the documentaries, and it just it just I can't even watch them anymore after the first time because they bothered me so much. Uh, but before that, what I figured I would ask you is, what's your second favorite story? Because I uh, the second best story you ever did. Because I think I know the first. <laughs> you are right. Uh, I always tell people I said it's like being a rookie baseball player and, and your first year you're in the World Series and you're at bat the bottom of the ninth and you're losing by three runs. And you hit a grand slam home run to win the World Series. And you had been working 20 days at that point or something like that? How long had you been there? Oh, no, no. I, I was 20, 26. I was relatively, I was only on the air for like a couple months. I was working weekends. I was like a low man on the totem pole. Yeah, I, I knew nothing when I did that. I, I always wished I, you know, you say, I wish I, I knew then what I know now. But it, it ended up okay, but it was, it was a very difficult ordeal. Did that mold the reporter you became? I think so. I think so. I, I never forgot it. I never, uh, you know, like I said, you hit the Grand Slam at the bottom of the ninth in the World Series, and you just have a long career. You never get that opportunity again. Well, it seems like a lot of things that happened with you were these random things that you made happen. You you parked one place. You decided to go across the street. You walked in the door. You misrepresented yourself to get upstairs. You met your wife. Correct. You know, you did all these different things. And, and then I... I you know, they talk about a champion for people with uh, mental disabilities, and I've always had a, uh, I've always had a problem because I feel that uh, we have all these different, we have uh, women, minorities, uh, gender issues, and everything's, cl everybody's clamoring for the top uh, and attention. I feel like we've always stepped on the back of the mentally disabled. Oh yeah. Uh, and, and lately... They had I, no lobby. They had nobody because it's not attractive at all. Correct. And then recently I felt that not as bad as the mentally disabled because they do get a little bit of attention. But ageism gets no attention. Ageism and the mentally disabled are at the bottom of the spiral. Everybody's standing on their back saying, why can't I be top of the pyramid? And they've been doing it for years. And they've been jockeying for the number one, number two position. But... They talked about a champion, uh, you know, for this. And you said in an interview that, you know, a, a champion. Have you ever thought you might have been that champion? 
I think I, I always thought of myself as being in the right place at the right time. Uh, you know, it, it just hit my sensibilities uh, to no end. I mean, I never saw anything like that. I, rem I remember when I first heard about it, I didn't believe it. I, I, I thought these people are lying to me. But one of the things I've, I've noticed is that people that are, and I don't use this word, the name of the show is Unsung, not Unsung Heroes. The word heroes is overused. It's been watered down and devalued, I think. I agree with you. But one of the things about people that, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll use the word champion instead of hero. The people who are that thing don't know it. They don't know it. Maybe you just don't know it. Because you you knocked over dominoes that started a change that's happening to this day. But uh, I, want, I want to make another point, though. To your point. Okay. The real unsung people in Penhurst. The ununsung, yeah. They were those two attendants who, who took care of 80 babies who were mentally disabled. 80. 8-0. I had two kids. That was a problem. <laughs> they had 80. They went to work every day and did it. I, I never blamed the people who worked there. The people who worked there were unsung. They got paid nothing, and they did unbelievable work. And without them, I would have never done the story. They helped me. Every day, they helped me. Well, and that was one of the things that really came across is that you weren't trying to vilify them. No, you they were not the villains. The villains, the real villain was <laughs> was everybody. It was the state. It was me. It was you. It was we just didn't know and we didn't care. But now that we knew, we had a responsibility. And that was my whole thing, that no one knew this was going on. But now we know and now we must change the system. And we did. And isn't isn't that still the most watched thing that that network did? It was the nothing got that kind of response ever at Channel Ten. To it this was, day, to this day, the, people uh, went crazy. And that, and that was the thing that was different back then. We talked about this a little bit. Is that uh, you didn't take a side. And you could see in that one that clearly you had a side. There was only one side. Correct. There was only one side. <laughs> there was only one, there was absolutely only one right. side. There was only one side. This, there, is, this is so wrong. There's nobody that's pro there was putting no, more kids in there. There was no justification whatsoever. Right. And, and everybody knew it. And it just – and then it just got exploited. I think in some ways it continues to be exploited, uh, the, the grounds to a degree. And, mm -hmm. and they're working on that and, and – uh, We've had them on the show because it, it did, it did. I didn't find out about uh, your documentary until I've been up there for a while, and it and it bothered me beforehand, and I thought I had a sense of it and everything, and I talked to some former people that worked there and stuff, and found a bunch of case files, and uh, then I found your documentary. And I was like, oh my god, because I had you could paint a picture, because one of the things that you talk about the TV still hasn't been able to do thankfully i guess uh is the smell that's correct and there was there was a hint of that smell that was there still i don't know how those people did it every day i don't know how they went to work every day and, and put up with it and uh you know there was no one on their side no one no one was helping them no one was funding them you know it was just just do whatever you can do that's fine but have you ever considered the possibility that had had Bill Baldini been Captain Baldini, a fighter pilot, that Penhurst might still be open? Uh, I did think of that. And, uh, I, yeah, I, 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 it might, if somebody may have done a story later on somewhere. But the, the thing that I'm happy about, and I'm proud of, that, that we did it when we did it, and it did change. It did, it did make a difference. Have you had other stories where you've seen the cause and effect like oh, that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I used to do a thing called On Your Side. Mm -hmm. And it was the only type of program like that on the air anywhere where I just – that I would little, literally take a side of someone who's getting screwed by the the government or or a business, you know, some somebody just couldn't fight City Hall. And uh, I got sued a lot. <laughs> I did. I got sued oh, left and right. I, I was in court all the time, and we never lost. Never. 
And at that time, and I was really proud that that, that was CBS and CBS took the attitude, we'll go to court for a dollar. And they made that point and, and they did. They backed me to the hilt. I mean, I had great lawyers. It was really wonderful. As long as you were right, yeah, no being problem. right matter. It doesn't matter as much anymore. Correct. Being quick matters more than being Correct. right. Correct. Being right doesn't matter like it used to. No, it doesn't. And uh, people don't even hear it when you're right. Uh, Let me tell you something about Walter Cronkite that I loved. Okay. I loved Walter Cronkite because I thought he was so professional. And I never knew where he stood on a story till he retired. And after he retired, I found out he was a flaming liberal. I I start laughing. I said, but I love the guy because he was right down the middle. Right. You never knew how he really felt about that story. And that was his job. Here are the facts. And you people decide what, what you want to think about it. And that's the, the way I thought it should be. You know, show both sides of the story and say that if you were. And that's the way the network was. You decide how you feel about it. Was there ever a story or a topic other than Penhurst, that you felt that you may have let your personal well, yeah. emotion leak out a little? Yeah, but it had to do with children. or It was something that was nobody's going to argue with. Yeah, <laughs> there's no middle ground. No, uh, you know, politics, no way. Man, I stood in that middle and not, both sides hated me. And I used to take great glee in that when both sides got mad at me. Because then I knew I was unbiased. I have that happen with friends that are conservative or friends that are liberal. That they both accuse me of being the other one, and I. That's, then you're right. That, that's then you know you're doing be. your job. That's where I love to be. Yeah. Right there, right there, uh, and it's it's. I, I remember stories where people would love to see you coming, and then I remember you were kind of like the the local, the beginning of the thing with uh, where they would make the joke about. Seeing Mike Wallace show up at your office and how you knew you were going to have a bad day. I saw some of that from you. When, when you I was show. doing On Your Side, that's yeah. exactly the way they felt. That was yeah. that was before 60 Minutes. It was. It was. They felt exactly like that. They said, holy smokes, Baldini's here. Uh-oh, we're in trouble. And I used to say, not unless you did something wrong. And you actually, you actually, through your domino effect, you indirectly got Geraldo Rivera started. I don't correct. know if you want to take credit for that or not, but <laughs> no, that is absolutely correct. After we did Penhurst, that the reaction was so unbelievable that CBS owned five stations around the country: Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia. And the bottom line was they sent our series out to each one of them and said, "We want you to watch this." And we want you to find one of these places in your area and do a story on it. And that's what happened in New York. Channel 2, some Geraldo Rivera got the story. And he went to a place called Woodside. And naturally, being Geraldo, he took full credit for everything. <laughs> it was long. It was a year after I did mine. Did, did you? And he, and he did it the exact same way as I did, by the way. That's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. Did, did you ever see... After Penhurst, did you ever try and find another story like that? Did you ever wonder if there was another white whale out oh, there? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I remember doing stories about Byberry uh, in Philadelphia. That was the, the place for the uh, mentally insane. Right. Up in northeast um, northeast Philadelphia. And it was it was like the movies. You but that's just, a little harder sell because there's not children. That's correct. The children sell that itself. Is, that is correct. Because I remember going into Penhurst. But it was still a hellhole. It was oh, bad. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I can understand that a little bit. Mm. A little bit because they need more money. They need more staffing. They need more. But there needs to be a care place. Because now what they do is a lot of people enter the mental health system via the legal system, which is wrong. Because they can get victimized in jail. You know, because you can't obey. You can't respond. And they get victimized differently. So there is a need for something like that. But I remember Penner seeing the, these armored, uh, completely lockable cribs. Oh, yeah. And steel. So, yeah, steel. Yeah. Like like a bear cage. That's correct. And and seeing uh, the thing that touched me the most was a, a, a little uh, child's prosthetic leg. And... You know, it, it was it was just uh, 
the place, and that's why I think it bothers a lot of people that they've made it an attraction, a quote attraction, mm-hmm. because the problem, uh, the, the the problem is the place invokes motions to this day to people, and in some ways, I, I you know, I said to uh, the people we had on uh, Ed Goldman about the preservation that it, it's in its own way, it's hollowed ground, you know, it, it's it's earned it, it's earned it. And it's certainly earned not to be exploited in its death. Um, and I feel that way about all of them. Um, but Penhurst was the worst because it was children. Correct. That, uh, you know, even even the adults, they were, child, they were childlike. They, their, their mental growth wasn't that great. And what, what astounded me, and we, we had a lot of parties. What people don't know is that we did, I did like three or four follow-ups. Right. And we had parties for these people at Channel 10 and all that stuff. And what astounded my my people who worked with me was when they would go up there, all these kids wanted to do, and the adults, was to touch you. Right. They was, just want human contact. That's exactly right. Just to show that, you know, like you cared. Yeah. And it, it broke their hearts. They said, I, I can't believe this. These people were thrilled that I just said hello. I, I grabbed their arm and let them grab my arm. And I said, that, that's what every day for them is like. There's no one there. No one cares. And they just love that attention. And I just, I just feel like there's the people with those conditions are, because it's not attractive, they're so low on the social food chain to get the attention. Even today, even despite all the good work that's been done, which without it wouldn't get anywhere um but i feel like you know somebody had said to me with missing people and i'll use the same example uh with uh people with mental disabilities uh and forgive me because i never know which term to use on a given day because every term becomes correct don't worry <laughs> about it with me yeah uh, you don't have to be politically correct with me and and when we look for missing people lots of times i've had people say there's more of a system in place to find a lost dog. Oh, yeah. Or to help a lost animal. Correct. And I feel that way about people with mental disabilities. One of my pet peeves, that if we do a story on, on some cat or some dog that's in trouble, we'll get an unbelievable response. You put that, change the names and put a child in there, and the response is not nearly as great. And that always bothers me. I mean, I love animals. Don't get me wrong. But I love people more. Right. They're and, more important. And people have to be around to take care of animals. Correct. And that's and I'm the same way. And people say, you don't like animals. I love animals. No. I have a dog. I love them. Sure. Uh, but it's, it's and then, you know, I jokingly said to somebody, what if we gave everybody a dog or a cat? At least we could up the love a little bit, you know? Because one of my friends said, if I go missing, I better take a puppy and a baby because nobody's going to look for me. Correct. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. He's right. And and that that's just it seems like our priorities we're more comfortable with that and I think that the problem with the, I think it's because people believe that animals are helpless see they helpless innocent they yeah, have no bias yeah. but uh, they're helpless I, I gotta help them but people have it they think that people have a choice and they don't have a choice all the time no and and that's that's an example of a place where people don't have a choice I mean and the fact that. When people would get better, I remember seeing paperwork, and they would keep people there because they were effectively indentured servants. If you were too good, you were kept. Absolutely correct. That's right. It was free labor. You'll You'll never never get get out. out. You'll never get out. That's correct. If you're too bad, you're, you're there. If you're too good, you're there. You're there. That's right. You know? Free labor. That's exactly what it was. And that went on for decades. Mm -hmm. That went on for decades. And uh, all these parents that had back in the 30s and 40s and 50s and even the early 60s, when they had a mentally retarded child and the doctor says, "Uh, there's nothing you can do. Uh, You would be wise in putting your child in Pennhurst. It's a great place. What do you know about Penners? You don't even, you never heard of it. You never, you didn't know where it was. And you never knew what was going on. And they encouraged you to, to abandon your child because there wasn't much you can do. Somebody who you trusted. And then later on, they found out there's a lot you can do. 
and you know, how about the guilt trips those people will put on? And it wasn't their fault. They 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 didn't know they had a choice. It, it was it's just horrible. I talked to so many of these people who had guilt feelings, and I said, it's not your fault. No, everybody was trying to work with them. Whatever we do is is medieval in 50 or 100 years, you know, uh, except for dentistry, which doesn't seem to change. <laughs> <laughs> Everything else is medieval. The terms we use, the way we treat each other, you know, uh, and, and uh, but that model hasn't, it hasn't changed as much as it should. And we haven't, we haven't, it's not something that people chose. And that's why, and it's, I've done shows on the opioid addiction, which used to be just a drug problem, and now it's a disease. It's been escalated, so it's more palatable. But the difference is there are components of that that are a choice. Nobody chose that. Nobody chose to be disabled in that way. Correct. You know? Um, anything you want to add? Any? No, I'm, I'm enjoying this. this I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, uh, I thank you for your time and uh, really enjoyed it. And uh, thank you for all you did. I think I think you were the champion you were saying that they needed. And you didn't realize it. Uh, well, then I'm happy. You know, uh, because I think that it's rare that you see a cause and effect that I think if you take you out of it, yeah, somebody might have come along. But you were, it, the timing was everything. The timing from when your mother and father met in inception and everything worked out. It's like, it makes you think there's something bigger and more divine because at no point did you have a plan and think that you would be involved in that. No. It no. just happened. No. Just, as, as you said earlier, most things in my life just happened. They weren't really planned well. Like I never dreamed about being a journalist, never wasn't one of those things I thought about. What a great life. Yeah, I, I did. I had a wonderful life. I have no reg- I look back and I have no regrets and uh, you know I'm very fortunate and I have you know two great kids and great wife and great grandkids. Great great kids. I'm really enjoying it. Well thank you very much. My pleasure, Mark. Take care.